Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Max Minute, where we're easily enthralled by twinkling music in Mad Max to the Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 38, which begins with Max pulling out the small music box that he found earlier, and it ends with Papagallo pleading with the compound to focus on protecting the fuel. We left yesterday on kind of a cliffhanger, because we saw Max reaching into his jacket, and we weren't quite sure what he was going to pull out. Well, today he pulls out that small music box that he got from Putrid Von Grossface. A few weeks ago. Well, weeks ago in our time, days. days ago from X. Two days ago, specifically. We find that out tomorrow, so I'm skipping ahead. <laughs> from this moment on is what the scene should have been. So none of the build-up from yesterday? None of the build-up. I think that was not needed. Yes, it was character building, but it was character building for Max. Max is already a built character. We don't need more building like this. I would argue that we got a ton of character building for Max in the first movie, and then Max was broken in a way. We do have to rebuild his character. Exactly. He was broken in a way, and he made some very morally questionable decisions in this second movie we don't so much need to redefine him as a character we need to redeem him as a character so he needs to grow in that way more so than us getting to know him we need to give him a chance to be good again i think this scene prior to the music box coming out of his jacket is redundant. Back when he got the music box, we got some remembrance and some... We got that little flicker of a smile as he was remembering childhood joy. We're going to see him interact more with the feral child. I know we're building a relationship. I just don't think this scene really does anything for building that relationship. Yeah. I think what it does for building the relationship can be accomplished with just the music box part of it. I think that the scene as it stands works better when you're viewing this movie as a normal movie viewer. I feel like this is one of those instances where watching it minute by minute kind of... Destroys the scene? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. My mind is recalled to that one infamous scene with Goose riding his motorcycle after Johnny sabotages it in the parking lot of the nightclub. Mm -hmm. And it is, I want to say, was it a full two days of him riding the motorcycle, a full minute and a half, two minutes before he finally crashes that thing? Yes. When you're watching the movie as a whole, two minutes, it's a good pee break. It's a good opportunity to build tension of, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to that motorcycle? But when you're in our situation, watching it minute by minute, It drags out much longer for us. Yeah. This scene with Max and the feral child might be that situation. I suppose so. I would like to point out that in the screenplay, the scene is what I think it should be. It's just the music box part. Really? Yes. How so? So it starts with, while the camp people argue Max sits forgotten, the manacles unlocked now dangling from one wrist. He produces the hurdy-gurdy that he found on the bloated man and plays the first few notes of happy birthday this draws out the feral kid from his hole and max plays faster and faster which 
is amusing to the feral child. Uh, several people at the back of the crowd, including Warrior Woman, turn to look, hearing the laughter of the child. Max holds the manacles up so that she can see he's free. She glares at him. He goes back to turning the hurdy-gurdy. The argument continues. That's it. He plays with the music box, entertains the child, and in fact, he doesn't give it to him. Nope, nope. In the screenplay, he does not give the feral child the music box. There are elements of that that I like. I like that he draws out the child. I like Using that. the music box. I like that he gets a little bit of recognition from the people in the crowd that Mm -hmm. he's there doing something. I like the idea that it's the warrior woman that looks back and that he motions to her with probably the shake of a wrist. Uh Uh-huh. Look, I'm free. I'm sitting here quietly, not causing any trouble. I especially like the detail that she glares at him because that is exactly what... she would do yeah that is right in line with her character i kind of like the idea of max producing the hurdy-gurdy after the feral child shows up though i feel like him pulling that thing out of his jacket and just playing it because he's sitting alone with nothing to do i don't know it seems a little odd to me because that's what the context sounds like as you read it where he's just kind of sitting there everyone is arguing and he's just off by himself so he's gonna pull out the music box to play for himself I don't know. Max doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that would fidget in that way. Reading through it again, it it doesn't seem like he did it on purpose to draw out the child, but more that he was, yeah, bored. He was fidgeting. In the movie proper... He's got the lockpick that he used to open his Right, and he he's actually handcuffs. kind of fidgeting with that. Yeah, he's kind of tapping it against his knee and fiddling with it in his hand. Mm-hmm. It's not until the feral child comes out that he even thinks to reach for it. Yes. So I kind of like that in the context of the movie, he produces the hurdy-gurdy in response to the feral child already being there. Yes. But like I said before, I also like that people in the crowd acknowledge that he's there interacting with the feral child in the screenplay. It also makes a lot of sense because the scene with the group of people on top of the bus, down on the ground in front of the bus, it's played like it's a completely different set piece from the feral child and Max, but they're right there next to each other. Yeah, like it's... you can see the back end of the bus. The warrior woman is standing right above them. They're a matter of 10 feet yeah, away. Yeah, so of course Max. she can hear this. Of course she can hear the music box. She can hear the feral child making delighted noises. It makes a lot of sense that she would react to that. Mm-hmm. I, an argument can be made that she's so wrapped up in the goings-on out in the courtyard that she's just not paying attention. But then she was kind of in charge of him. Before <laughs> this whole scene with the horde, she was the one who locked him up so she should probably be checking in on him it would probably be the responsible thing to do but virginia the warrior woman is staunchly on team papagallo Mm -hmm. she is the stand and fight camp of this argument and so she's going to be there with zeta to defend papagallo's standpoint against the doubting voices of big rebecca and curmudgeon so she's probably really invested in this conversation that's happening as we see in the next minute or two i don't remember exactly when a lot of people feel the same way as rebecca yeah, there are a lot of people who, that are who willing to their just weapons. pack it up. Yeah, Papagallo needs all the support that he can get, and he needs the support of 
prominent members of the community being Zeta, Warrior Woman. Absolutely. Based on the feral child's reaction to hearing Max turn the hurdy-gurdy, do you think this is the first manufactured music that the feral child has ever heard? Like, he's probably heard singing, he's probably heard basic instruments, but as far as, like, mechanically produced music, do you think this is kind of his first exposure to a machine that creates a pleasant noise instead of a more mechanical ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk? Yes, absolutely. I also posit this may be one of his first encounters with a toy. Mm. Something created for not so much a utilitarian purchase, just a... Just for enjoyment. Just a thing. I I made the comment that I imagine he's got a cache of treasured belongings, but I imagine those to be just... Trinkets? Yeah, odds odds and ends ends. from the remnants of society. (laughs) You want thingamabobs? He's probably got 20. Right, exactly. Like just random objects that in the context of society have some kind of use or symbolism, but I doubt that he has any toys. This is an entirely new sensation for him, perhaps. But who cares? No big deal. (laughs) He wants more. Uh, It also made me wonder, and maybe we see some of this in the coming minutes... Are there any instruments in the compound? Not that I remember seeing, but I have a feeling the more we see of the more residential side. Yeah, we might see in the background like a guitar or a recorder or something like that. So I'm wondering if he's ever heard music, period. Yeah. That seems unlikely, though. That many people in one compound, someone. Got to have like an old fiddle or they use drums as music to dance to or something. Something. And you know if there's a guitar, there's going to be one person that walks up and says, oh, hey, is anyone using this guitar? So anyway, here's Wonderwall. Yeah. (laughs) Music is such an important part of reforming society that we've talked about that probably like every episode in this (laughs) movie so far. That they are reforming society, and music's a big part of that. I mean, there's a reason it features so heavily in Beyond Thunderdome and Fury Road. Both of those movies feature music rather heavily. Although I might be overemphasizing the amount of music in Beyond Thunderdome, but it's actually been a while since I've rewatched it. So as Max is turning the crank on the hurdy-gurdy and making the music box go, the feral child has this gigantic smile on his face. He is enthralled and enraptured and what's another verb I used? Uh, Elated, even, to be listening to this thing. Max, throughout this whole thing, does that Max thing that he does and he keeps a straight face. That's so weird to me because when you are smiled at by a child, it's very hard to keep a straight face because their happiness is not jaded it's it's very pure and so it's hard not to be infected by that but max no he keeps those walls up he is a hardened warrior of the wasteland and he's not going to show any sort of amusement i think you nailed it on the head he's a hardened warrior of the wasteland and he learned the hard way what happens when you attach yourself to people that they can so easily without you being able to do anything about it be ripped away from you i think him being so serious all the time It makes the gyro captain as much more of a foil to Max because the gyro captain is able to derive pleasure from things. Mm -hmm. He has a jovial nature about him at times. He's able to crack jokes. And Max is just so not that. And I think that's why they paired them off really early in the movie and why they're going to run into each other later on because they just work so well off of each other. Max is the eternal straight man and Bruce is there just trying to 
get him to crack even the slightest bit so that he can lighten up a little bit. Max, after turning the crank for a little while, he takes the music box in one hand and doesn't throw it initially. He kind of does like a little feint to yeah. make sure that the feral kid is on his toes. And then he tosses the music box to the feral child. And as he has this hurdy-gurdy, we look up back at Max and we kind of hear the music, but it sounds like it's played backwards. Yeah, I was trying to think of like, well, how do you play a little music box like that wrong? <laughs> like you can't do it wrong. You can do it too fast or too slow, but it wouldn't sound the way that the feral child makes it sound. So I'm thinking it must be going backwards. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a simple enough contraption that they don't have a backstop to prevent it from rolling the yeah. opposite direction in which it's supposed to go. Yes. He is so dang excited. It is like Christmas morning when he turns that crank, hears that music, and then looks up at Max and makes that noise that I've been using to cover up swear words. <laughs> <laughs> the happy squawking or whatever you want to call it. He is so dang excited and runs back into his hole to uh, be seen later on in the movie. I like that he appears when he's needed and then disappears. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't hang around longer than needed. No. And a lot of characters in a lot of movies do that. Like, they're there when they're part of the scene, and then they just disappear for a little while. Mm. But his is explained. Yeah, he lives in a hole. Yeah. When he's not needed, he goes back to his hole. Feral Child goes back to his hole, and Max shifts in his seat and refocuses on what the adults are saying in the middle of the compound. And we pick up with Papagallo, who is continuing his speech from yesterday, and he says, But remember... Remember one thing, that is more than just a tanker of gas. That is our lifeline to a place beyond that vermin on machines. I gotta say, Papagallo's pretty good at giving speeches. We kind of mentioned yesterday the idea of the compound dwellers responding specifically to inspiring speeches. Yes. And... With the exception of him repeating himself once or twice, which, you know, you can fix in post anyway, he's pretty good at it. He's good at putting on an effective tone, something yeah. to draw out emotion. I saw this speech is very political. Yeah. I wrote down in my notes, he sounds pompous like a politician. So he has not won me over. I still dislike him. <laughs> okay. But he's not wrong. If they want to get to the northern tribes, at least free from these vermin on machines, they need the gas. Mm -hmm. And the curmudgeon is down in the yard, and he yells up at Papagallo, that's 2,000 miles from here. How do you expect us to get it there? Drag it? And Papagallo says, if we have to, yes, there's always a way. But the first step, defend the fuel. The curmudgeon is being a curmudgeon in this scene, and he is shouting up, trying to cast doubts on what Papagallo is saying. He's using an exaggerated amount to sound like the task ahead of them is insurmountable. And he uses that number, 2,000 miles, which, first of all, as an American listener, thank you. Based on the narration at the end of the movie, I definitely got the idea when they said the Great Northern Tribe that they went from Silverton up to the Cape York Peninsula. Now, Google Maps does this cool thing where you can click on the map and say, measure distance. You click on the Northern Pillet, Peninsula, you click on Silverton, and it's actually a lot less than 2,000 miles. That distance is only 1,368.71 miles, or 2,202.73 kilometers. So he could have said that's over 2,000 kilometers from here, and it would have been spot on for 
the distance, but for American audiences, they must have swapped that around a little bit. I'm looking in the screenplay, and that line's not in the screenplay at all. Really? Really. What is in the screenplay is Papagallo's entire speech. Really? Yes. What's it What's it say? This is after Big Rebecca says, he promised a safe passage. He gave his word. Papagallo replies, and let us suppose he keeps it. And we walk out of here with our lives. What then? Do we wander the wasteland, scavenging? Wake up one morning and find we're just like them? Savages? Is that what you want? I don't. I came out here and I found that pump. I built that plant and plowed that field. Why? Because we are human beings. We must maintain our dignity. We are not barbarians. I made one mistake. I waited too long, thinking we could survive here. We can't. But as frightened as we all are, let's not forget one thing. Pointing to the tanker. That is more than just a tank of fuel. It's our lifeline, our passport to a place beyond the reach of men on machines. I don't know how we're going to get there, but the first step is to defend that fuel. I won't surrender it to anyone. I stay alone if I have to. And that's it. Wow. So it's it's a really good speech, actually. Yeah. Like, if that's the type of speeches that the group is used to, then of course they're going to believe Humongous, because that was good. And also gave us some backstory. I've always wondered, like, why didn't they leave before now? Because Papagallo, he made a mistake in staying so long. He recognizes they should have left. They should have left the moment they had enough fuel to get them there. That makes sense. Yeah. The moment that they could fuel all of their vehicles. Yeah. Something that we need to remember to discuss when we get to the end of this movie, and I know that's a long time. I'm starting to think, based on what we know happens later on in this movie, and his regret about not leaving sooner, I think they definitely could have left a lot sooner if they had just left the tank behind. Because when we get to the end of the movie, that's exactly what they're going to do. Right. They didn't need to fuel all their vehicles. They needed to fuel the bus. Yeah. So we're gonna... I think they did take more vehicles than the bus, but really, push comes to shove, all they needed to take was the bus yeah so we're definitely gonna have to readdress that when we get to that point but i kind of let the idea that papagallo is really owning up to the fact that he didn't pull the trigger metaphorically when he had the chance and now because they stuck around too long they find themselves in this situation and he's owning up to it yeah and he's willing to fight alone if he has to right which he probably wouldn't last long, but the idea is he's not willing to abandon what he put so much work into. It's kind of a shame that they uh, didn't cut more between Papagallo's speech <sighs> and Max and the Feral Child. Yeah, if they had just not put in the part with Feral Child before the music box comes out, they could have put in more of the speech. Mm -hmm. It's a good speech. So we're going to see later on in this movie, after Max gets back with the rig, before he tries to leave alone, we're going to see the curmudgeon hold up a postcard of where they want to go. And 1,300 and some change miles to the north of them is the Cape York Peninsula, which compared to where they are in Silverton is a drastically different part of Australia. I looked up some information about it. The yearly average temperature, and I feel like you're going to like this, the average yearly high is only 84 degrees Fahrenheit, 29 that's, Celsius. That's lovely. The average yearly low, 73 degrees Fahrenheit, 23 degrees Celsius. Wow. Yeah. That's really a narrow window. Their yearly average rainfall is 70 inches or 179 centimeters. That's a lot. Lots of rain. It's very warm. It's very rainy. It's lush. It's tropical. Yeah. It's a rainforest. Mm-hmm. 
So very different from the arid conditions around Silverton and Broken Hill. It makes a lot of sense that they would want to go that direction. I think the main issue they would find when they get up there is the fact that the amount of water makes traveling a bit more difficult. And no one really knows the ecological status of the world so if there was a lot of nuclear activity it might not actually be that safe they might be walking from the frying pan and into the oven yeah into one bad situation into another but right at least then they wouldn't be trapped in the middle of nowhere yeah but that's a that's a major event of Fury Road is going from one bad situation to another and then back to the first bad situation because yeah. it's better than the other one. <laughs> that <laughs> comparison is right. really interesting because in Fury Road, they're going somewhere specific that is supposed to be better than where they were. Mm-hmm. To, they call it like the green place, right? Yep. So they've got this ideal. Well, Furiosa, I think, is the one with this ideal, this picture in her head of where they're going and what to expect when they get there. And then they get there and it's gone. We don't see the end of the journey for for the compound dwellers. Mm-hmm. We just kind of take it on faith that yeah. they get where they need to go. Right. It's like <laughs> it's like George Miller did this movie, and yeah, it was. We're just going to kind of assume that it was a happy ending because the narrator is here telling the story, so it must be a happy ending. Well, what if it wasn't? Yeah. What if they get to where they're going and it's just as bad as where they came from? I'm jumping so far ahead, yeah, but we I were... love the fact that Furiosa and max and the wives and i think nux is with them at that point they actually drive through the green place yes. and they don't realize it's the green place until they reach the i think it's the so, Luvalini, and then they say oh yeah you you, you drove by it, it. that's right. why we're not there anymore yeah because <laughs> now it's just a mud pit yeah all that lovely moisture well that's what it turns into <laughs> yeah i think if they were to try to incorporate the entirety of Papagallo's speech back into the movie, that taking the interaction with Max and the feral child, making that interaction built more from wide shots where we see feral child and Max and then we get a wider shot where they're more in the background and we're able to hear Papagallo mm-hmm. still speaking. So that way we get to hear more of the important stuff that he has to say but we also get to see max and the feral child in like the mid to background range cutting out the speech i feel like we're missing a little bit yeah i think I, it adds a lot to papagallo i think cutting out the speech is telling us that what he's saying isn't important that what he is saying is he's just talking out of his ass yeah and we don't need to hear it because it doesn't mean anything you know we're going to come back for the important part the point of the speech is that we're going to stay put but that's not the case actually seeing the text of the speech it's a good speech mm-hmm. and there's information as viewers that we would like to have yeah there that are elements. he started this little colony he started it he built the place up he built the plant yeah it kind of sounds like when he got there it was just a pump and he built the plant. Yeah. It and, gives a lot more credit to his character. Yeah. And it makes me like him a little bit better. It kind of solves that problem of I'm not seeing any redeeming leadership qualities in him. Well, you kind of do in this speech. Yeah. Unfortunately, his speech is not as encouraging for the compound dwellers in the movie as it may have been in the screenplay. Because we are going to yes. hear Big Rebecca pipe up from the crowd. In response to Papagallo talking about defending the fuel, we're going to see more people stepping forward and saying what they think. And we actually get to finally be introduced to the captain's girl, Archie Whitley, tomorrow. So that's kind of cool. So uh, come back for that. 
The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 30 of the Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.